Welcome to the Improv Comedy Connection podcast. I'm your host, Witchiller, and I am excited to share a conversation with Patrick Rowland with you. He's recently been added to the writing team on the Amber Ruffin Show, which we talk about a bit, but Patrick is also disclosing about his journey from working at the post office to getting bit by the comedy bug, which started a journey with ups and downs. He started out in Chicago and trained at the Second City and I.O., He's a founding member of 3P, a sketch and improv super troupe that continues to produce great content. The arch wasn't always pointing upwards, but it was great to talk about all of it here on the Patrick Rowland episode of the Improv Comedy Connection. Here we are. It is a sunny day where both of us are, and uh, we've been talking about having a conversation for a while, and... Like I said before, we hit record. A lot has happened over your career, and I'd I'd like to start if we could at the beginning. I mean, you can give your improv sort of origin story if you want, but mm-hmm. as you got into it, kind of what were you looking? Did you have certain goals, or were you just doing it? What What was the story right at the beginning? So right at the beginning, uh, it goes all the way back to two thousand six. I was working at the post office and I've been there for seven years and hated it. Absolutely hated it. It's backbreaking labor. Um, not appreciate it. Uh, and it's like you work at the post office, at least from my experience, that was your life. You, you went to work and cause I had crappy hours too. I was working like the Uh, midnight to 7am shift and then sleep during the day. like like sorting processing as opposed yeah, to a mail carrier i was a mail handler because i had the option of yeah. either being indoors as a mail handler or clerk or being out on the street and i was like not in chicago weather i this baby is not going to be breaking my knees for that so i was like right. i'll break my back inside so i was working as a mail handler and by that time i had switched over to be a custodian uh okay. for maintenance uh because it was easier it paid a little bit less but it was easier work but mm-hmm. I look up and I see that there is Mad TV is coming to town for the Chicago Improv Festival. And I was like, oh. I love Mad TV, love SNL. Yeah. And I, I was always kind of like a class clown. So I was like, oh, the tickets are pretty cheap. I'm going to go see the show. So me and my friend Tamika went to go see it. And it was at the Anthenaeum on the north side. Uh, okay. And it was Mad TV writers because I think there was like, they were on hiatus or something like that. So they were doing the show and they improvised. And I was just like, Never saw improv in my life. And I was like, what is this magic? I love this. And I went home and got on my computer and looked up um, improv school Chicago Mm. and Second City pops up and all this other stuff. And I'm just like, oh, holy crap. I've been living in like the mecca of comedy (laughs) my whole life. And even like my uncle lived like a couple of blocks from Second City, but I never heard of it, never knew what it was. So I was like, I'm going to sign up for classes. It took me like four months after seeing that show to work up the nerves to sign up for Hmm. writing classes. Cause I was like, I'm not getting on stage. I'm introverted. I'm shy. No way I'll get on stage, but I can write. And I loved writing. Uh, At that time I was trying to be like a romance novel writer. (laughs) I was going to write black romance novels. Okay. Um, But so I was like, I'll be a writer. I could be anonymously famous. And when we started reading our sketches out in class, I would like be different characters and I started like, Oh, I like kind of like that performance aspect. Let me take an improv class. And like through second city, I heard about IO. And so I, I took a level a class at second city and I was in love with improv, like 
boom, in love. And mm -hmm. so I was like, give me all the classes. So I started taking classes at IO as well. At one point, I was doing the writing program at Second City, beginning A through E improv at Second City and the improv program at IO all at the same time. Just dove in hard. Yeah. And it was just more like, this is fun. This helps me get over this crappy job that I hate that uh, I thought was going to be my career because like it's great benefits it's great right. pay. who would quit the post office the more i started taking classes and more I started seeing shows the more i started thinking about like maybe 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 a career um mm -hmm. and taking classes for a good two to three years so 2009 i finish io and i get placed on a herald team Mm -hmm. Like the most exciting news I could have ever heard in my life at that time was like, ooh, a Herald team. Uh, <laughs> I get to pay for a coach and rehearsal spaces. <laughs> what was the name of the team? Uh, Hammer Time was my Hammer first time. Herald okay, team. That was your, okay. Yeah, and we didn't even change the name. That's the name they gave us. And we, we couldn't figure out a new name, so we just stuck oh. with Hammer Time. <laughs> okay, so that was, that was in the queue for a while, and everybody kept knocking it down for like, yeah. what, 15 years? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So okay. I get placed on a Herald team. And at this time, I'm starting to really get into improv. I'm at the theater at IO every night going to work less and less because I accumulated a lot of sick leave over my time at the post office. So I was like, I'm using it. You had to get sick. Yeah. <laughs> so I would call off work almost every day for like a good two months. And oh, then geez. I saw the SNL showcase and it was a showcase that Vanessa at Bayer, I. yeah, okay. at I.O., and Vanessa Bayer, and that was the one, Vanessa Bayer and Paul Britton got hired for SNL. And I remember sitting, watching the showcase and seeing Lauren Michaels come in with uh, Pat O'Brien. He goes by Michael O'Brien now. And I was just like, this is uh, obtainable. I could, I could do this. Mm -hmm. So I decided, not decided, but like after two months of calling in sick straight, my union steward calls me. I was just like, hey, can you come in and meet? And I was just like, sure. And he was just like, hey, the post office is offering people that spend their 10 years or more $15,000 to like make a clean break because they were trying mm -hmm. to save money. And I was like, why would I quit? Like, why did I take this? I can just keep calling in sick. It's like, that's just it. Like, you've hit the point where I, the union can't protect you anymore and they're about to fire your ass. This is the best option. So I was just like, I'll take it. Okay. And I took the 15000 quit the post office, and then I was just like headlong in the comedy i was just like okay this is i i'm gonna make this a career mm -hmm. and and went head first into it and i spent like a whole year building up characters and all that stuff so i could do that snl showcase so just to pause on that when you said mm -hmm. i could i'm gonna make this a career what did that mean to you i had no fucking idea oh I okay maybe like it, like everybody's like snl like in my mind, it's like, oh, yeah, it's that easy. I'll, I, I'll do SNL. <laughs> I got a Barack Obama impersonation. They'll snap me up just like that. Or, like, it, I, it wasn't clear. I just knew I want to do something in comedy. I didn't know, like, if it was, for the longest time, it was, like, SNL. It was, like, oh, I'll get to the main stage of, of Second City or, or stuff like that. But I didn't have a clear picture, and I've never been, like, that organized guy. I was like, this is yeah. AB. I just knew, like, I want to do it for a career. Post office is in my way. It's out of my way now. Right. I'll figure it out. And that was also, I think, I let a lot of the improv training get in my mind of like, jump out of the plane, figure that shit on the way down. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. So 
in my mind, I was like SNL or like I'll get an agent and start doing TV shows. Maybe there'll be some kind of other sketch show or something I can be part of. Uh, whose line is it anyway? Something. I don't know. Right. But something would make itself known. So I started going into that and I really got onto the SNL trap really hard of like coming up with characters. And in 2012, I actually got picked to do the showcase at IO. And I was like, this is it. We're doing it, baby. <laughs> uh, and that was the year Cecily Strong got hired because she was in the same showcases I, uh, that I was in. Uh, okay. And she got hired that year, I think with A.D. Bryant as yeah. well. And I was just like, oh, man. But then I dusted myself off and in 2013 started doing that showcase again. And I did the SNL showcase at IO a good five times mm. okay. between 2012 and 2013. Fifth time was the showcase in front of Lauren Michaels and like some of the writers and producers. And I got flown out that year in August to audition, do a screen test for SNL. And okay. I was just like, this is it. Yay. And then I didn't get picked Yeah, and just destroyed me because like I put a lot of eggs in that basket for some stupid reason. Yeah. And after that, that's when I was like, all right, you know what? You can't focus on like having one theater or one show validate who you are as a performer. Mm -hmm. And at that time I started really getting into like late night talk shows, like really loving those and watching mm -hmm. the monologues. And there was Alex Moffat, who's actually on SNL now had a talk show called uh, The L Show. And okay. I would go watch it and I was like, you know what, I think I wanna like work on that. And I took a late night writer's workshop class at IO and I started developing uh, my own late night talk show as Barack Obama called Barack All Night. Yeah, And I ran it for like a month at CIC, uh, Chemically Imbalanced Comedy. And then I moved it over to IO and it was like midnights on Saturdays. And I did that for like, six months every saturday at midnight i was doing my own talk show and i had people writing for me um huh. i acted as a head writer and i would write monologue jokes come up with like desk pieces and i would have people impersonate celebrities uh and i would have a stand-up and i would have musical guests and like the first show chris red was the stand-up for mm. that show so i was like really into late night talk shows and still doing stuff by the time i started performing with my independent team, 3P. Yeah. The first iterations was me, Namdi, Brianna, John Thibodeau, Nate Sherman, and Gary Richardson. What year was that? 3P's first year? 3P's first year was actually, I think, 2012, actually. Okay. So it was around the time I was doing the SNL showcases. So okay. yeah, 2012. And that was going great. Uh, and as life goes on, Gary moved to New York. Nate and Brianna moved to LA. Thibodeau was doing Turco at Second City. And then mm -hmm. I got offered a ship with Second City. Mm -hmm. And that was also around the time IO was closing to move to the new location. So we we're just like, it was a fun ride. We're all going our separate ways, as improv teams do. And we did mm -hmm. that. Uh, I get back from the ship. Thibodeau's done with Turco and Nandy's still around. So we reformed like the three of us started doing three-peat and we did the NBC Breakout Comedy Fest in 2015 or so. And it was like, yeah. you know what? It's time to like start bringing three-peat back because I always finally got the new space. And by that time I 
there was more black performers <laughs> uh, in the yeah. improv community. So just like, oh, let's get some of these people we know that are really good. And that's when we started like expanding three Pete and we added like Shantira and uh, Dwayne and, and Torian and a lot of other people. And then we got like asked for a slot at IO to do a run and we had to go over the artistic director's head to Sharna to get a spot. And they gave us Monday at 10 PM, which is like a dead night in improv right, at that time. Right. But we built up that slot and like the first within a month, it was selling out shows and we sold out that 200 seat theater for like a couple of years. Were you guys doing most of the marketing to make that happen? We didn't market mu at all. Yeah. Really? We like kind of word of mouth stuff. Yeah. It was like just the strength of like, like some people that saw us at the old space and would come to see shows and then they would tell people. And then I think when we did a diversity jam, a lot of people showed up and that was their first introduction to us. And they were like, who are these people? And they just mm -hmm. kept coming back every Monday after that. And it would just yeah. be sold out. So you talked about kind of a short period of time from when you guys had started to, I think what you said was that there, there were more black improvisers in the community there. Mm -hmm. Is that just, did that just sort of happen or were there some things happening that led to that increase in, in numbers, I, if you will? I think it was like improv started going out to black community because we didn't really know about improv. Our thing was like, stand-up was like yeah. my introduction to comedy and in the black community is like stand-up but you started having teams like three pete and then there's uh there was this team before us blackout uh mm -hmm. with, um and then pimp prov so it started being more black people that would see a show it was like oh improv i i see people like me doing it let me do it as well mm -hmm. um and it started growing and then second city had this thing called the Bob Curry Fellowship, where mm -hmm. it was a way to reach out to underutilized uh, people in the improv community. Right. A way so it's not like, oh, every team is all white. Yeah. And I was part of like the first wave of people to go through Bob Curry and a, a couple of three Pete members too. That's how I met Torian and Shantira and uh, Lisa Beasley. Like it was a strong first group that came out of yeah. that. Uh, yeah. So with that, it was like even more people of color coming into the improv community because like, I think Lisa and like Rashawn, they were like more theater and acting and their agents mm -hmm. like, you got to start getting improv on your resume. So like they would get uh, referred to like Second City and that's, I think that started growing more. And then when 3Pete started doing even more shows, that's when like even more people of color would come out and like, oh, yeah. that was a great show. How did they learn that? Oh, they learned it from these places. I'm going to start taking classes. And it just started growing more and more from there. One of the things that I feel like 3 Pete probably has done more than most by a long shot is, at least it feels to me from the outside, is you, you kind of created your own brand too. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, was that something you decided early? Is it something that just sort of happened organically? What what was this what was this quote unquote strategy for three Pete? So what it really was was we were tired of being on teams that didn't get our references. We were tired of being pitted against each other in auditions where it's like only one slot for a black person. Yeah. And we'd always see each other at auditions like 
hey, we're going out for the same thing again. And we just mm-hmm. wanted a place where we could just like a safe space where we could get our references, do what we want to do and have fun without having to worry about like fitting into a certain little box or improvising mm-hmm. a certain way. Um, yeah. And it, it was like, I think a show at the Chicago Improv Festival where it was like the original three Pete, where we did a show where it was like, we kept like trying to find what's our form. Cause like improv, like you gotta have a form. And mm-hmm. our form was like, one of us would do a monologue and then we would like improvise based off that monologue and like almost like Armando style. Okay. Um, but what happened was we, during the show, it was just like just fun thing happened where we just started playing with each other and playing really quick and like forgot all about like the format and just said, fuck yeah. it, we're just going to have fun. And that from that, we were like, oh, that's what it is. Just follow the fun. If it's something yeah. fun, do it. And um, it kind of organically came about where it was just like, we're just going to have fun. I'm not going to worry about the rules. We're not going to worry about format. We're just going to have fun with each other. And that was just the best possible thing to come from that, where we just said, fuck the rules. (laughs) Did that develop into a form or it just always was sort of each show would kind of go its own way? It kind of go its own way. Uh, It kind of like settled in like our pace was like we do the opening monologue. And then from there, it was like just kind of like fast, 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 like our... Mm -hmm we were really quick with like the scene would start. And if something from somebody on the off stage thought of something cool, run in, do a tag out or whatever. There was even one show where we were trying to tag Nandy out and he would like flat out just say no. <laughs> and he stayed in the whole scene. Um, so yeah, we still don't kind of have a format. It's just like the, the most we stick to the format is somebody does an opening monologue. So do you think there's a lesson like overall in terms of like how, like you said, people feel like I got to figure out what our form is for Mm. this team or whatever. And you guys didn't do that. Is that kind of a choice? Like maybe everybody should just sort of abandon this, putting the form too, too high. I wouldn't say that it depends on the team. Like at this point we knew each other so well. Mm-hmm. that like a form didn't really matter. And I okay. think a lot of times a form is just like a skeleton to like keep people from like going crazy and like losing focus of what's going on. Like if they feel lost in a scene or in a show, they have mm-hmm. this form they can fall back on. It's like, okay, I know if I go back to doing this two person grounded scene, I can get everybody back on track. Okay, And I think form helps a lot with, people who aren't as familiar with each other. But if you're like, like three people, we're all really close. We're all really good best friends. So like we know each other and we know each other's strengths and weaknesses, and we know how to make each other look strong and look like a rock star. Mm -hmm. I would say if, and I've seen this with a lot of Herald teams, we'll get too bogged down in the form. So I would say, sacrifice form for fun like form can help a format can help you but if it's to the detriment of the team at some point you can say like you know what i know we're supposed to do a game slot here but this is we're having fun with this scene let's stick with this Mm -hmm. so when you added people to the group though if you've got that sort of tight Mm -hmm. core group of 
I don't know how many it was at the time that you started bringing a few more people in. Mm-hmm. How, did that change the way you did shows? Did it make it, uh, were there accommodations you had to make as you got to know people better or what'd you do? I don't think it was accommodations. I think like we would almost kind of have like a little tryouts, like, hey, we would have what runoff shows uh, here and there before we got our run, our second run. And mm-hmm. we were like, hey, um, like Mandy would say like, oh, hey, we're going to have Shantira play with us this week. And and the show's like, damn, like she's amazing. She's great at editing. She's like mm-hmm. right on with all her references. She's in the group, right? Nice and easy. Yeah, nice and easy. Uh, and we would like find the things like each member would bring some kind of strength. Allison is like, you talk about like just being in the moment, just being in the mm-hmm. moment. She like, she's pure improv. I think she's like one of the best performers on the team because she is in the moment. Uh, she's not in her head and she's having fun. Right. She brings that fun. She can bring that X factorness to the she brought the X factor and fun to the team. Um, Shantira is like very knowledgeable and great with editing and like is a great uh, head player where she knows how to make those moves to make everybody look great. I can be physical and I can also be a little bit in the moment and a little bit big picture seeing which moves to make. But it was like mm-hmm. just seeing how they would perform in a show. And yeah. how we can incorporate them into the team. And it got to a point, too, of like, uh, we were like a hot, like one of the only all black improv teams at a point. And like, so everybody's like, that's black's like, hey, Kenneth, I want to play. And it's like, we can't let, like, we, we're not letting everybody play. It was like, if we like saw you perform, we like respect your performance and knew like you could hang with us, we'd invite you to play. Or if mm-hmm. we just thought you were fun, we invite you to play and see how you, were you able to keep up? That was our big thing. Could you keep up with the pace of our show mm-hmm. and not get lost and hold your own? Mm-hmm. And that would be a big factor if you could just stand on your own two feet on that stage with us and not be like jittery. <laughs> yeah. When did you start moving from doing just improv shows with 3P to having sketch be more of a part of it or video um, sketches that you would do. I mean, cause it's, it's grown beyond mm-hmm. a Monday night slot, yeah. obviously beyond that. And it's still, I, I mean, I don't know with, with COVID exactly where you guys are at with it, but you were expanding what you were doing and ha- having some pretty good success with some yeah. of the stuff you were putting out there. So, so we had talked about doing sketch and like having a web series for a while, but we never really moved on it. And it, I think what really pushed us into it is like one night, like after the show, Nambi had this uh, great idea when we started doing the Monday night slots at IO is like after the show, we come out of the green room and we thank everybody for coming as they're yeah. leaving. We thank them all. And this guy comes up to us and he was like, great show. I was like, all right, yeah, thank you. All right, let's keep the line moving. And he was like, hi, I am a vice president of talent development for ABC. If you guys ever like have some video or something or a sizzle reel send it my way and i'll like try to get in the like top people hands and he gave us a card and we we're all just like looking at the card like it's the golden <laughs> ticket and I swear to god within that week we wrote and shot a sizzle reel where uh, for those who don't know a sizzle reel is just like <laughs> like quick like little sketches so we wrote like some quick sketches like almost like little fast 30 second one minute sketches uh, mm-hmm. And we kind of made the sizzle reel to make it look like, you know, our own sketch show. 
Right. And we sent it to him. And like, first off, we were just like, this came out really good. We really fast too. really fast. Like we are, we some boss people. Uh, and we <laughs> sent it to him. And around this time, also Chris Red, who was part of the team, had been having like some really great success. He did uh pop huh. star, never stop, never stopping. And he, I don't know if he had got hired by SNL at that point. I don't think so just yet, but he was doing like some, some stuff. He was already moved out of Chicago and, I think in LA at that time. Mm -hmm. So he would like do pop-up shows and we would fly out and he would have industry folks there and uh, we would do our show. And at that time, the sizzle reel started making its round, its rounds around like the networks and whatnot. And Comedy Central came to one of the shows and they came to us like after seeing us and was like, hey, would you guys be interested in like filming some sketches for Comedy Central. And of course we're like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um yeah. and that's when um how the blackening came out. Dwayne had wrote the blackening for a second city show. And so like that was one of the ideas that was pitched was the blackening and Comedy Central latched onto that idea. Did Second City put it up or no? It was part of this I think it was part of the show Afrofuturism or Black Side of the Moon. I forgot which show it was. Okay. But uh, we, we took it to Comedy Central and rewrote it because I think it was originally like a two or three person sketch, something like that. Mm -hmm. And we wrote it, rewrote it for like eight people right. Right. and shot that and it went viral. Yeah. Like, I think it's gotten 15, 16 million views now. Yeah. And then that afforded us like a little bit of credibility within the industry. And during this time, that's when members of 3P started getting things like Chris Red got SNL, Dwayne started uh, doing some stuff, Shantira started like writing for, I think, 50 Cent's sketch show that didn't last mm -hmm. too long, but like we started started getting more things and we would also regularly come out to LA to do pop-up shows for Chris in front of industry folks that started getting our feet in different doors and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And then it started growing. Dwayne and Chantera moved to LA. And like by that time, Thibodeau got hired to write for Late Show with Stephen Colbert. And stuff started just popping, popping off. Mm -hmm. And I think we had got to a point just like, yeah, we can't do our weekly run at IO anymore because it's like right. we're, we're too busy doing other stuff. And not to say we've grown past improv, but it's like we started seeing that next level. And it's like, yeah. we got to start concentrating on that. And then we started doing a couple more videos for Comedy Central. And then everybody started like just blowing up. <laughs> Is it to the point that all of the activity that people were having make it hard or maybe even impossible to keep whatever you were building together? a thing or is the is the the team aspect still something that is part of what you think your individual future successes will also be yeah i, I think it's like one of the things i love about three peter is like individually we all are amazing we all have our amazing careers and but collectively we're also a powerhouse so we're still a team we still will mm -hmm. like i mean because of the pandemic we haven't performed Right. Really. And even before then, we, we would here and there, we would do like, because the majority of us are in LA now. So we would do pop up shows at UCB every now and again, and they would sell out still. <laughs> mm -hmm. And at that time, too, 
before the pandemic, we were doing a lot of, we were doing the improv festival circuit. Like everybody was flying us in to do shows. Um, mm -hmm. So we would use that as our time to like, hey, reconnect and like catch up with each other. Although we still text every day, almost every day with mm -hmm. one another and stay in touch with each other. But as far as like shows, because we're like really, everybody's doing stuff, it's hard to nail down everybody to like, well, let's do a regular improv slot. It's kind of like, do we have time for that? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, even for like future video sketch work. Oh yeah. Like yeah. I, that, that's definitely in, in the plans. We're still okay. like looking for projects to do together. And I think now that everybody's finding their own individual success, yeah. it's going to be even easier for us to, when we finally have that time for each other to carve out, to do something together, it'll be even that much easier to like, mm -hmm. oh, we can go to say Netflix or Hulu or a network and say like, hey, here's everybody's individual credits. Here's our collective credits as a group. Gimme, give us a show. Yeah. And we're yeah. starting to like getting to good spots, like spots where we can get to like we don't have to find a producer or showrunner because like one of us will be a producer or showrunner and it'll just be easier. But right now, like we're, we're, we're trying to find like, what's that's next step for three Pete as a whole. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we've, we've pitched like a couple of projects to different networks that haven't bit, but we've also had like the three, the blackening was mm -hmm. made into a movie. Dwayne uh, wrote the movie and I think they're, maybe casting it now i'm not sure but that's going to be coming out soon and like even that and that's going to be half like created by three pete so like okay. to have something that like oh that's we pretty a, big that's right? pretty big mm -hmm. it was like all right showtime mm -hmm. yeah so did you did you uh did you all film that like yourself or did you get budget from a comedy central because it's it's pretty slick looking. Oh yeah, that was Comedy Central money. Um, that helps, they, doesn't it? <laughs> they, yeah, they flew us to New York. They okay. did all the filming. Had a director, Chioke, who's like amazing and directed a lot of stuff for SNL and a lot of TV shows. They 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 gave us a good a good little crew uh, yeah. to help us film it. I think nice. that's helped too. It, it looked really professional. That always helps. That always helps. But yeah, 15, 16 million views helps too. Yeah, it does. <laughs> I want to go back uh, in time a little bit with you. So you talked about having like five years or five uh, showcases that you were doing. Mm -hmm. And you, you mentioned the time that you went out to New York for the SNL screening. Mm. Did you not do a showcase or pursue that anymore? What, what happened with that potential goal that you had set for yourself after that experience? So after I got flown out and auditioned or auditioned for the screen test and didn't get it, usually like once you've been flown out, they're kind of like, all right, we're, we're kind we've of seen done. you. Yeah. We've seen you. We know what you can mm. do. Okay. And so I kind of figured like, well, that, that ship sailed. Let me look into new venues. And that was like when I started doing the late night talk show stuff. That's when it started appealing to me. Okay. Cause with the showcase, those, I think three of those showcases was them calling Sharna and saying like, they will say like, here's people we want to see again. Here's people we don't want to see again. And they kept like bringing me back three times. Like, oh yeah, let's bring back Patrick. Let's bring back Patrick. 
so in my mind, I was just like, well, they saw me, they figured like hard pass. <laughs> well, not mm. hard pass, but like they passed on me. Right. So I was just like, I can't keep like solely looking at this. I, I yeah. did a couple more showcases or auditioned for the showcase a couple more times, but by that time, I felt like also like my heart wasn't mm-hmm. in it as much. So the material wasn't as good as when I got flown out. Mm-hmm. And so I was just like, oh, instead of me trying to beat this dead horse who I'm not really, I'm not that passionate about doing this. Let me, mm-hmm. let me find something else. Let me rebuild. <laughs> well, let me fast forward a little bit too. Cause one of the things that I remember, I mean, obviously the pandemic throws all kinds of things all, <laughs> all over the place. Yes. And I hope this is okay to talk about, but yeah. one of the things that I remember uh, just sort of seeing in your your feed was just this, it seemed like a, a, a struggle, like, do I get a regular job again or not? And you, it, you know, I don't know how much of it you were expressing publicly versus privately, mm-hmm. but uh, it seemed to me like you were definitely wrestling with a lot at that time about just in some ways kind of where, where does this career that you're building even fit now? Mm-hmm. Can, you, can you talk about that time and like what, yeah. what you went through? Yeah. So it's, it's funny every time I, I felt like it was like a, a, a somewhat dark period and I've gone through like a couple of them within my comedy career, but I always mm-hmm. time where it's a dark period of like me not getting a, a tour co or me not getting SNL I'll go into like, oh, what's going on with my life? What am I doing? Mm-hmm. And always it forced me to like, all right, figure out something new. And then I would come back better as a better performer. So during the pandemic, I tried doing like improv over Zoom. It just wasn't the same for me. I, I hated it. Mm-hmm. Like kudos mm-hmm. for people who were able to do it and can do it. It just wasn't for me. I couldn't, I just didn't have that feeling. I was just like, I have no creative outlet. How do I get a creative mm-hmm. outlet? And also, like, I'm not teaching as many classes. My wife was like the sole, our sole income. And mm-hmm. that was like a lot of burden on her to like mm-hmm. be the only person bringing in like revenue. And I was just like, God, do I have to go back into the workforce? Cause I can't go into, I don't, I can't, I'm not getting me teaching classes because classes started shrinking. Right. And I, it, it was like that. I was like, ugh. And then I saw a Target being built uh, mm-hmm. near where we stay. And so I was like, oh, God, I guess I'll apply for Target. And it was like just the whole, I had like that post office vibe again. I was just like, oh, back to something that doesn't utilize my creativity. It's like, ugh, retail work. <laughs> and I was like, ugh. But uh-huh. I had to bring money in. So yeah. I applied for the job at Target and I got it. And it was just like, oh, here we go. And it was at that time, I was just like, well, now this really sucks. And I'm really not getting any creativity done. And that's when I started doing like little web series videos yeah. for the Patrick Rowland sketch show. And like I taught myself how to edit video and like I got a green screen and like how to do all that stuff. And uh, that was a fun outlet, but it was still mm-hmm. like, eh, I'm working at Target. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. But also I'm finding this new creative outlet with the web series. Had you started that during the pandemic then? Or did you do some of that before? Yeah, I started it during the pandemic. At first I started this web series called Isolated, where it was just like 
quick 30 second videos of like, oh, I'm sitting on the toilet. There's no toilet paper because of the whole toilet paper shortage. And I'm just going, right. fuck. Right. Or like uh, I'm just sitting there having a staring contest with the pillow or uh, I'm just sitting there drinking and all of a sudden my cat talks to me. So it was like really quick videos, stupid stuff. And then it, I had fun doing those and it evolved into me like, you know what? I'm just going to have my own little sketch show because it's a way for me to get creative and also get content out there uh, mm-hmm. and get other people's eyes on it. And maybe it'll catch the eye of somebody and be like, hey, here's a TV show or something. Mm-hmm. But it's mostly just a creative outlet to, to, to fight the, the boredom of the pandemic and the mundaneness of having this uh, regular job I go to at Target. <laughs> but the, the, the sketches you do, have they all been like solo sketches? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I would like just play, like the, the main thing was just like, oh, I shot this, I wrote this, I edited this, I filmed this. It was all me <laughs> on right. an iPhone. And okay. I thought that was like just a catchy thing to do. Yeah, but you're not still working at Target. No, I quit. <laughs> <laughs> So, so uh, why why don't you just set the table for like how that how that closed out then? I don't because so, I don't know all the story, but I know I know the punchline to it. Yeah. So. so I was working at Target. This is like I'm in month six, and actually, like it wasn't that bad. I make it seem like it was like Ugh. it wasn't that bad. It was just me but it wasn't what you wanted. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so I'm six months in. I'm starting to get like the health benefits. I'm getting nice amount of hours and i get this email from amber ruffin who i knew from back in chicago improv days Mm -hmm. i was a student when she was on the main stage and like uh it was like one of the first times to see a black person on that stage and it was like mind-blowing and it was like i think the other person was like christina anthony who was on the etc stage and i was just like ah black people i love you i want to be your friends Mm -hmm. um and I remember like talking to her after one of her shows at Old Town Ale House back when I was a student and I like worked up the nerves to say, hi, I just want to say great job. And it's so nice to see black people. And I was going to run away, uh, but she stopped me and talked to me for like a nice amount of time. Yeah. Um, so fast forward uh, during the three peat days, like Amber kind of became our unofficial auntie. Like she was like really looking out for the group. <laughs> she loved the group. Nice. And the year before, in 2019, she emailed like some of the group and was like, a lot of times people are asking me for like, do I know any black writers? So send me writing samples so I can like, you know, refer them to you. So I get an email from Amber saying like, by this time she has her own show. She had been crushing it on Seth Meyers as a writer and a performer and they has her own show on Peacock. And at the time, Dwayne and Shantira were one of her original writers for the show. So she sends an email saying, like, we're looking for writers. Um, it's an invite only. So I thought of you, if you want to submit, like, here's the criteria and all this stuff. If not, it's okay. And I was just like, yes. Uh, so <laughs> it, it happened to be a time where, like, I was about to take a week off uh, work for uh, to get a vasectomy. You had enough sick days? <laughs> uh, actually, I did. I had enough to cover that one week. That's six the key. Yeah. It's sick days. Six months. <laughs> Save them, people. <laughs> um, but I was taking a week off. It was coming up. I was going to have a week off because I was going to get a vasectomy and I wanted to take some time off. Well, now we're getting personal. Okay. Yeah, I'm an open book. I, don't <laughs> I know. But... <laughs> so the week before that, it was like that. I think it was like a Thursday or a Wednesday. 
Amber emails me asking if I want to submit. And like, at that time I had been like writing, doing my sketch show. And also I've been writing like monologue jokes every day just to stay sharp. So I sent in the packet. And at that point, like I've had, I've been close to getting jobs before. So Mm -hmm. I never believe anything's real until it's real. So I was just Mm -hmm. like, I sent in the packet, I hope, but two days later, I get an email from Jenny Hagel saying, we loved your packet. And I was just like, squee, we're moving you on to the next round. So I have to admit a second packet. Okay. So I get all new original material from. Yeah. Yeah. I had to send in, like, I think I had to write two more sketches uh, and some monologue jokes. And so I'm getting a little bit excited, but still, once again, it's just like, Mm -hmm. it ain't real until it's real. Mm -hmm. Then two days later, I get an email from their assistant saying, um, we'd like to set up an interview with Amber and Jenny. And so once again, I'm like, ooh, because I've gotten to the interview portion of a packet before when Jon Stewart had his, that animated show he was going to do that never happened. He was, uh, yeah, okay. It was supposed to be for HBO, but it never, it, yeah. I got to the interview stage with the head writer. Then they decided like, ah, oh, we're not going to hire any more writers. And I was just like, well, fuck. Um, so yeah. I got to the interview stage. And I was just like, okay, I'm getting excited, but also it ain't real until it's real. And usually like that interview is just like to make sure you're not nuts. Right. Um, and usually like the interview is like just shooting the shit. And so I was kind of like, well, I, I, I know Amber a little bit. I never right. met Jenny, but like, they're also, they've done Chicago improv, so it should be fun. Mm-hmm. So we do the interview and it goes really good. Like I felt good about it, but also I was just like, eh, ain't nothing real until it's real. Mm-hmm. And that was also the day I was getting my vasectomy. Mm-hmm. So I was like, all right, I got to start prepping. For you the did surgery. that after. Right. I did the interview before. Right. No, the interview before. Oh, yeah. Right. Second after. So like I did an interview and I was just like, that was, that was cool. Uh, uh-huh. So I started prepping for the surgery and all that stuff. And then I checked my email just, just to see. And it was like the system emailed again. It's like, Hey, can you jump back on for a quick talk in like 15 minutes? And then like, I was just like Schrodinger's cat. I was just like, I could have the job. I could not have the job. Like uh-huh. it could be them just like being nice and saying like, we want to tell you in person that like, sorry, you didn't get it or you got it. Either way. I was just like, we'll see. So I set up and they, the first thing they say is like, would you like to work for the Amber Ruffin show and waterfalls? Like mm. I lost it. I recorded it too. Mm. And it's only for me. I'm never going to show mm-hmm. anybody, mm-hmm. Uh, but it's like a fun motivation just to like, it was just yeah. like, I don't know all of that work I put in like is finally paying off. And it was like, just unbelievable. And I was just like, I'm writing for a late night talk show, a late night show with one of the best people in the biz, one of the hottest shows, a great writer's room, a majority black writer's room. And I just lost it. And I remember like, I had to like, oh, fuck, I got to do this. <laughs> I got I to gotta do this procedure. Uh, and everybody's just like, why is this guy so happy? <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, I got my dream job today. This was yeah. like the best feeling in the world, also followed by getting <laughs> getting my nuts cut open. <laughs> it, was a, it was a roller coaster of day. That's life, right? I mean, it did help with the recovery. It was like, well, um, probably, probably I, did. Yeah, I'm like I got to start writing, so I, I got I got that job. It was Wednesday, I think. April seventh was the day. 
Okay. And I was just like over the moon and I had to have stuff submitted by like that Sunday. So it was like no time to like really pause and celebrate too much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause you're going to work. Yeah. Going to work. And it was mm -hmm. like, it was like, do I have, well, I'm going to have to move to New York, which I don't have to, I can work remotely. So, which was a, I guess a positive thing to come out of a pandemic, people learning that, mm -hmm. oh, you can do this job through zoom mm -hmm. and through all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And I remember like two days after the procedure, I put on my best clothes and I went to target and I went and I talked to the store director and told him like, Hey, I'm quitting. <laughs> and yeah. they were a little upset. I didn't give them like two weeks notice, but I was like, I'm sorry. I don't have two weeks. Yeah. yeah. Like, I'm yeah. sorry. I'm not sorry. Um, <laughs> right. So I, you know, I know this, you described it as a personal moment. You're not going to share the video and I'm not going to ask you to, but can, can you unpack the emotions a little bit more if you're willing that you yeah. were feeling in that? Because, because that's, that there's a lot there. There's a lot yeah. there. It's like, imagine like working for a goal for like 15 years. It's like, and being in a place where you're thinking, well, nothing's ever going to happen. And you see like a lot of your friends having great success and being so happy for them, but also mm -hmm. having that feeling of like, why not me? Yeah. And just like knowing, like having all like the doubts, but also like the confidence and knowing like, I know I'm good. I just don't know what I'm doing wrong, why I'm not getting picked and realizing like, it's not you. It's just like, sometimes you're not a perfect fit. It's not what these people were looking for. Yeah. And just to have, I don't know. I just, I, I was hit with so much happiness. Mm -hmm. And it's like one of those moments you dream about, like hearing you're getting your dream job and playing out like how you're going to react. And all my playoffs were like, oh, I'm going to be super cool. And I was just like a puddle of tears and <laughs> yeah. joy. And even after, for like a good two, three weeks, even to this day, sometimes I will break down crying happily and just saying yeah. thank you over and over again. <laughs> yeah. And it's just like, I don't know, it's just like such a happy feeling that I've never experienced besides my wedding, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's different gauges of happiness. <laughs> Very different paths, yeah. Uh, so you have this nice moment of success, but then on the other side of it, you also shared some of the the situations where you didn't you didn't get picked for something that you were going after, like the the SNL screen test, mm -hmm. and you talked about how you know you had to make sure that you kind of grounded yourself in terms of you know, what, what validated you as a person and what didn't and not getting passed through to SNL wasn't a validation or a non-validation, mm. but now you have this moment of success. How, how do you process that? Or how do you talk about that with others who haven't had maybe that nice moment of success to just sort of take in like you described? Yeah. I think like, uh, when I would teach my students, uh, when I was teaching at second city and IO, because a lot of people are just like, I want to make a Herald team. I want to be on Turco. I want to be on ETC and main stage. I want to do SNL, all this stuff. And I was like, I'd always tell them, that's great. It's always great to have those goals and work your way to them. But also know that these theaters, these uh, shows, they don't validate who you are as a performer. And that was something I struggled with for a long time. Um, mm -hmm. I would think like, oh, I didn't get this because I wasn't good enough, right? 
even if I was like, this is the best material I've ever put out. How come I didn't mm -hmm. get it, right? Or even on an audition, a commercial audition, like, oh, I crushed that audition. And then I would see where they picked. I was like, oh, I never had a chance anyway. And I think mm -hmm. it goes back to me figuring that out. One audition I did for Illinois Lottery, and it was for this character, Fireball. And there was this guy who had red hair and red beard. And okay. I, I did a really good audition, and they picked uh, one of my friends, Joey Romaine, to do it. And he's like, he has red hair and a red beard. And I was just like, oh, I was never going to get that. I was never going to get that that job, right? They weren't looking for me, but sometimes they have like, oh, we have to have a certain amount of this person or like um, a certain amount of people from this agency to auditions, like kind of like filling in the numbers or some crap. Mm. And even with the SNL audition, like they hired like six like straight white people Right. I was just like, oh, they weren't looking for what I do at that particular time. Yeah. Right. And it was had I had to learn not to take rejection personally. Mm -hmm. And that's what I would tell students. Don't take it personally. It's not a slight on who you are as a performer, what you bring to the table. It's just sometimes they're just not looking for that type. Mm -hmm. You look at like Steve Carell and other people uh, of note who auditioned for SNL but didn't get it, it was like we just didn't, they didn't need that type of person at that time or were looking for that type of person at that time. And they went on to have great, successful careers. So I like looking at it that way. They're not, it's not yeah. a comment on your performance or who you are as a performance. It's just sometimes it's just, it's just not what they need at that moment. Yeah. And to know like you, are uh, you're you're great and if that's not your path make your own path and that's what i kind of felt like i was starting to do with like doing the patrick rowan sketch show or even with, like three peak forming it's like you know what we're gonna make our own way uh mm -hmm. if these people don't see how great we are we will create our own shit. Mm -hmm. and that's when people started like "Ooh, who are these people <laughs> right yeah yeah because if you are trying to please someone else you have to be at least a little bit in your head, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the reasons I think I had such a good writing packet for Amber because they set up their packets so well where they will let you know, they emphasize, don't write what you think we want to see on the show, write what you would like to see on the show. Mm, and okay. that like, for some reason, when I read that, I was just like, oh yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to do what I do best. And I remember submitting like a parody song, and uh, this other thing, and I like, I love doing parody songs. Um, and I think it was one of the reasons I got hired because it, it instead of me trying to figure out like, oh, how to write for them, I wrote what I liked and they saw my voice in it and they saw where I could fit in with the show. Yeah. And so it was just like, yeah, I think it's just like, don't do what you think they want. Don't do what you think they want you to do. Do you, be you, that's mm -hmm. why they want, they want to see you. Mm -hmm. Everybody has their unique point of view, and that's what makes them entertaining. Don't look to be the next Tina Fey or the next Key and Peele. Be the first you, right? Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's what makes where where people find that success is when they stop doing what people what they think people want to see and just do what you want to do. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes you stand out more. Do you feel that uh, your writing? or your performing feels more personal to you or if or do you take 
critiques more personally one or the other, if that question makes sense. Yeah, I, I love getting notes. I love the critiques. I've always been just open to hear other people's ideas because it's like when you're playing chess or checkers and you mm-hmm. can't see the move, but the person standing behind you over your shoulder sees like 40 million moves you could have made. I think that helps you grow to get that outside eye or the outside note. One of the things I love, I feel like I'm in a like this comedy boot camp with working on Amber Ruffin show because I get to like bend the ear and pick the brains of like these comedy masterminds of like Jenny Hagel and Amber Ruffin of just like taking in any lesson they give me about structuring my monologue jokes or sketches. It just helps you become a better person. So I don't like take my stuff like here's my here's my baby. Like, yeah. how can you make this baby better? Instead of like, don't you touch my child? Like, I'm mm-hmm. like, I offer my baby up to everybody. That's a <laughs> weird thing to say. <laughs> Especially after getting a vasectomy. Too, so. <laughs> <laughs> like, where'd this baby come from? <laughs> didn't, didn't well, that's why you can have it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what kind of lessons have you picked up uh, in your time as a, as a writer there? I'm learning how to be more, how to get out the most amount of information and the least amount of words. Mm, I'm a tell me about of, that. I'm a type of person where yeah. I, I will like write this long drawn out setup for mm-hmm. a joke. And I think it comes from my like long form improv training of like, you know, I really want to set the picture and I'll get too long winded. And like, I've sat down with Jenny and she's like broken down like one of my segments and like, ooh, you take this out, take this out, move this up here change this wording, boom. And I was like, oh my God, that looks so succinct and it hits everything. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm really learning how to like cut out a lot of the unnecessary stuff. I found myself like, oh, I've said the same thing three times in this one paragraph when I can just incorporate those three things into one line and okay. make everything a little bit more succinct. Is that more just kind of like, okay, you, you should, I've seen how you kind of squish it down and now mm-hmm. you just, you just naturally do that or are there certain it's still trial and error of like figuring 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 it out like even with my monologue jokes uh there was one setup where it was the nra canceled an event in texas due to the big COVID outbreak that's happening right Mm -hmm. and my punchline was shoot (laughs) right yeah right uh and jenny sat down with me and like like this like this is a great monologue joke Instead of starting off saying the NRA, move the NRA to the end of the line right. so the shoot hits even harder. So just like yeah. due to COVID uh, outbreak in Texas, NRA council event, shoot. And I was like, oh, yeah, that hits even harder because the NRA is fresh in the people's minds. And right. then they hear shoot, they make that instant connection, and then hilarity ensues. So like even like taking a setup and like just moving a simple word over <laughs> – in yeah. the sentence changes the dynamic of the whole joke. And it's so mm-hmm. crazy. I even remember yeah. like learning from Anthony LeBlanc how like just emphasizing a certain word could like change the outcome of a joke, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he went in about like how they were touring this one sketch and it would kill every night. And over the tour, it got less and less laughs and they went back and looked at like the original and they saw that a performer wasn't emphasizing one word. <laughs> yeah. Right. And when they went back to that format, the laughs came back. It was just because mm-hmm. somebody was lost the emphasis of one word 
Mm-hmm. It, it changed the whole dynamic of an entire sketch. It's interesting when, when you look at stand-up and stand-up comedians, or if you're writing jokes, that that precision in both the, or efficiency in the wording, the word choice, the word placement, the word emphasis has such an impact. And then when you look at improv, I feel like we, we don't port over as much of that learning for the way that we try to get, you know, try to get the funny out, try to get the sketch out, try to get the premise out. It's just kind of like, well, let's just sort sort of throw the whole mush out there and hope mm-hmm. it works. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so crazy. Like just learning, just learning that it's almost like I'm back in level one of writing class or something like that. I'm just like, oh yeah, just a mm-hmm. small little thing. And I've learned to like, I, I read my sketches and monologue jokes out loud now as well uh my poor wife is the recipient of all these (laughs) but it's it's, it i found it's better because like in my head like oh this is hilarious and then i read out loud it's like oh this is way too long (laughs) Mm -hmm. right yeah so it's it's like even learning that of like okay now i just read everything out loud i can hear it are you a pretty disciplined person or no no (laughs) no i need deadlines uh i I am not disciplined at all. I'll be that person that's like, oh, the deadline is Thursday at 7 p.m. I will start writing at Thursday at 4 p.m. I'll wait right up until that deadline. I'm not organized at all. Okay, well, I feel closer to you now. But the reason (laughs) I asked the question is you had said that you would be writing Mm. jokes just to stay sharp. Yeah, was that a hard thing to do when you didn't have specific deadlines for that? Or how, do, how did you decide to keep doing that? It was mostly out of boredom. Like, I, it wasn't like, you know, three o'clock every day, set of clock this amount of time. It would be like um, sometimes when I'm inspired or if I'm watching a show and something hits me as funny, I'll just start writing. I would try to like set a goal of writing every day, but mm-hmm. I wouldn't say like, this is the time I'm writing. It's just like, mm-hmm. whenever you're inspired, right? Mm-hmm. And because it was a pandemic, I just happened to have a lot of downtime. So that just happened to work to my benefit of like, oh, I'll I'll write then. But it wasn't yeah. like I had a set set schedule. And a lot of like, when I say writing monologue jokes, mostly you could also say like uh, a tweet. I would like just like, oh, I would see something funny in the news. I'm like, oh, I'm going to write it as a post on social media. So that was like mm-hmm. my form of writing as well, as okay. opposed to like sitting with pen and paper or on my computer. It's just like, oh, I'm just going to test this out on social media and see how many likes I get, yeah. which wasn't many. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll make sure people can find how to follow you on <laughs> Twitter <laughs> to increase that like count. Um, you know, improv is uh, certainly my primary avenue in uh, the kind of things that we do. Mm-hmm. And... I think it is a fair observation that improv often becomes a stepping stone to something for Mm -hmm. people. Where does improv fit for you looking forward from today? Well, first off, I have yes and tattooed on my wrist. I, I, um, I think for me, I have taken improv a little bit more outside into my personal life of like 
it taught me to like be open to new ideas, to be open to, to hear people's notes and to listen to people when they give me notes or whatnot. And not just like nodding my head like, yeah, yeah, I get it. But listening to understand within performance wise, if I have an idea for a sketch that I want to pitch or write for the show, mm-hmm. I will act it out sometimes with myself out loud. I would like improvise the dialogue between the characters or whatnot. And it helps me find the funny. It helps me brainstorm the stuff that doesn't work and to find that one nugget that does, right? I could write two, three, four pages of monologue jokes just to get two that are like stellar. Uh, and the same with, with sketches. I will improvise a bunch of stuff and like, oh, I think this is a funny idea. And I'll try to act out. I was like, eh, actually, it's not that good. Mm-hmm. Or I'll have half of idea and I'll improvise. It's like, ooh, ooh, I like this one part. Mm-hmm. Let me write that down and beat it out and expand on it and make it something. So like I'm constantly using improv to help with monologue jokes, with help my sketches and mm-hmm. just life in general. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, that's, that's all, that's all really good. In the past, you have done a fair amount of teaching mm-hmm. when it comes to improv. I think also when it comes to sketch writing, things like that, is that something that you see as going to be part of your future as well? And if it is, what do you think at least once we're past the <laughs> current situation will be the best way to people to take advantage of that. I love teaching. I think right now I'm so focused on doing a great job on this show and getting myself more opportunities. It's kind of gone to the back burner. I yeah. have taught, like I recently taught a late night writers intensive for DePaul. I saw that. And yeah. so right now I think it, I'll have like one offs here and there. I have had the, thought of like trying to start a theater uh mm-hmm. and and get back into teaching but that's like that's years away that's not even right now on my radar so okay. like i love teaching don't get me wrong I, I love it but right now i'm focusing more on myself i will like every once in a while i, I think i'm gonna offer like workshops here and there mm-hmm. because the more i'm learning especially in late night the more i'm learning i want to pass that on to people because when I was pursuing this, I always had a lot of questions. I was just like, I wish I knew the answers. And now I know the answers. So I want to give those answers to other people instead of, mm-hmm. and make it easier for them and to pull them up and make their lives easier. That actually reminded me of the thing that I, I wanted to close out with you. Because oh, awesome. you had uh, shared something. I, I asked a question about like, you know, other uh, people or other topics or things like that. And you were kind enough to to share one. And it has actually been something a little bit on my mind where you talked about, it'd be good for us to hear more from those who are learning, the students, the people who are earlier on in the process. Yeah. And can you talk about why you think that's important? What kind of things you think we might learn or, or be missing if we don't reach out that way that... Uh, what, yeah. what, what was on your mind when you wrote that? So I'm always interested in the journey and I'm interested in other people's journeys. And I think uh, a lot of times we hear from people like myself, uh, not to my own horn, that has found like some success. Mm-hmm. And that's fine and good. But 
a lot of times people like because that's all they hear they it can make you think like oh yeah it's super simple you take your classes you'll get a job eventually mm -hmm. and it's great to hear not to hear like their struggles but to hear like like the things that they love about improv in their journey and things that like could be worked on right if we heard a little bit more from students before maybe second city wouldn't have gone through a lot of the turmoil that they've gone through mm -hmm. maybe io wouldn't have been going through a lot of the stuff where people of color or or women are having all these uh microaggressions to be able to hear from the people that are like actually still in the trenches and learning this stuff i think is a benefit for those who are teaching or running theaters and even those who are going our students to hear like oh i've gone through that as well and i have this connection i'm not alone for a while i felt like i was the only black performer in improv when i first started doing improv uh yeah. it was like sprinkles of people here there but i felt like i was the only one i'm the only one having these weird experiences of microaggressions and uh you'll hear these podcasts and all the podcasts and interviews is like oh these are just straight white male improvisers i can't identify with them and they've already done classes and they're performing i want to hear from the people like me who aren't at that level yet because mm -hmm. i think it's just something that as a community as a whole we can learn and grow from especially mm -hmm. now more than now more than ever i'm one of those people that use that term uh i feel like we're in a kind of like how a forest burns down and then new stuff sprouts up and grows i feel yeah. like we're in that part like a lot of improv has been burned down io is close it's going to open back up but like second city is going through a whole new transition ucb all these like other theaters all like the top stuff have kind of fallen down a little bit and now you've mm -hmm. got all bunch of these new theaters popping up like stepping stone in chicago uh squirrel in uh new york, new york. Mm -hmm. where you're getting more diverse voices and i would love to hear from the people that are starting to experience this new kind of new day of improv and mm -hmm. see where it's going to go. Well, and I think not hearing just one perspective, I, I think it's good for everybody because if part of what improv teaches or should be about is you being you mm -hmm. or in any kind of art, you being you so that you're not just copying someone else. Oh my God, yes. Then if you don't hear different paths or different perspectives, or even if I think one of the things you're suggesting too, in that is, is different points in time on the journey too can be informing. That'll help us all be more us too, but uh, also yeah. expand the stage too. So, yeah, well, it's really been good, Patrick. I'm glad we had some some time to chat, and hopefully we get a chance to do that again. And Love congratulations to. on the Amber Ruffin show on Peacock. Thank I don't you. know if that does that stream internationally or just U.S. I'm not sure. I because I remember I seeing somebody from Canada saying like I can't get this, so I'm not sure. You can probably find YouTube stuff. Oh yeah, on we, we Amber do. Ruffin. Yeah, yeah, you put it like she. Um, we have a YouTube page for the Amber Ruffin show. We also have where you can hear a lot of the songs because we do a lot of songs on that show. 
um, you can find them on iTunes and anywhere you stream. Oh, it's on iTunes soon. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Oh, let me ask one last thing. You did the one sketch with the, uh, the sequin jacket. Did you you get to keep that? (laughs) No, I wanted to so bad. I wanted to so bad. It's a strong jacket. It's strong. I was just like, Ooh, I I can see myself in sequins. You can rock that. (laughs) I can rock that. (laughs) All right, Patrick. Well, uh, we'll stay in touch and thanks again for the time. Awesome. Thank you. It was awesome. I really appreciate how much Patrick shared about his comedy journey. He's had some things not work out as he hoped, but he took time to regroup and refocus and reorient his efforts. He's got a great gig going now. While I know there is passion for the achievements or the advancements he's made in his career, you can also tell that Patrick has an openness to learning and adjusting that no doubt has contributed to the joy in both the journey and the results. I'll also highlight the realization within 3 Pete that Patrick described about just following the fun and focusing on that over any particular format. While I think that's a great principle, you can do that most successfully within a group of performers that like, know, and trust each other and have the talent and common sensibilities to keep up with each other. As humans, I think we like to reduce things down to that one thing. But it's going to be more than just one thing if you're going to have an impact, especially a sustainable one like 3Pete and its members are having. But you also have to realize that important little ingredient like just following the fun. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Patrick and I encourage you to check out the episode webpage with more info and links to him and his content. If you've been enjoying the podcast, would you please share this with a friend and rate and subscribe? And please do the same for other podcasts that are making your life and craft better. It takes no time, but you'll make the other host day by just taking a few seconds to click on five stars or maybe a minute to write a quick, encouraging review. I've been your host, Witt Schiller, and I'm an improviser out of Milwaukee, and I'm with Fishsticks Comedy. You can check us out at fishstickscomedy.com, and you can connect with me on social media, at Witt Schiller, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can also go to witchiller.com for additional content and resources to help you in your comedy or communication journey. I'm doing this to be of help to you and others as we work together to connect more deeply with each other and our audiences through comedy. Thanks again for tuning in to the Improv Comedy Connection.